It's not a very big book. It's a small book, but it's a great book. It's by someone named Jaron Lanya. And as an author, he finds most beautifully articulate words to describe the digital dilemma that we find in the modern world. And he starts in his book by talking about cats and dogs, which is perfect, because who doesn't love cats and dogs? And he says, please don't be insulted. Yes, I am suggesting that you might be turning into a well-trained dog or something less pleasant like a lab rat or a robot and that you're being controlled by the clients of big corporations. But, he says, if I'm right, then becoming aware of it might just free you. So give this a chance. This was Jaron Lanya from his book, and we've stolen his book title for the name of our episode today, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts. Right now. Yes. You're listening to Tech for Evil. Where we tell you what big tech do want you to know and how to fight back. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. A prison for your mind. Jaron Lanier is a scientist, musician, and author. And he's actually best known for his work in virtual reality. He has very beautiful TED Talks. His recent TED Talk was about how we need to remake the internet. And in his talk, he says, I quote him, we cannot have a society in which if two people wish to communicate, the only way that can happen, if it's financed by a third person who wishes to manipulate them. Jaren Lehner helped crafted a vision for the internet as public commons where humanity could share its knowledge. But even then, his vision was haunted by the dark side of how it could turn out with personal devices that control our lives, monitor our data, and feed us stimuli. He talks about the 10 arguments that we really went through. Um, I mentioned, when I finished the book, I mentioned it to Reinhardt, and he laughed his Great. lungs out <laughs> when he just heard the title. And it's a really funny book. When you read it, you really laugh a lot. But you don't know if you're laughing out of, like, shock or laughing out of... <laughs> tears of joy or tears <laughs> of sadness, not sure. It's very mixed emotions when you are reading the book. He does lay out 10 really good arguments. We won't cover them all in the episode. We're going to pick a handful, but we will quickly tell you about all 10. The first one is that we're losing our free will. How, how, how badly does that suck? The second one, he talks about that quitting social media is the most finely targeted way to resist the insanity of our times. Simply quitting can change the world. I love it because it's how we can stick it to the man. Number three is that social media is making us into assholes. And I think he's <laughs> picked one of the best assholes, the exemplar assholes, Donald Trump, to point at um, as a victim of his own addiction in Twitter. Number four, he talks about that social media is undermining the truth. And actually, that's why the Twitter account Real Jaron Rayner isn't Jaron Lehner, <laughs> as he says in his book. And if you thought that was scary, <laughs> scarier still is that social media is making what we say meaningless. Uh, number six, he talks that social media is destroying our capacity for embassy. And it doesn't stop there. He argues number seven, it's making us unhappy as well. Yeah, the mental health impact is very real. Argument eight, 
social media doesn't want you to have economic dignity. And I do agree with this. I did a whole book called Move Fast and Break Things. And in the book, there was a big argument how social media or the current, not social media only, but the current model for, for things like music, the music industry yeah. is really making musicians don't make good music anymore because they don't make money out of uh, their music when it was digitized. Quantity over quality. Mm-hmm. The people who make money out of it, not the content creator anymore, mm. are those platforms. Ninth in his list of arguments, Jaron says, well, it's ma- social media is making politics impossible. So we have very few independent news sites and the Facebook uh, model where they introduce news as a feed as well, he argues, transformed journalism actually because it incentivized journalists in the wrong way. So um, while we have, we're not covering that, we do strongly encourage you read the book because the, he does make some really good observations. Yeah, the last one is social media hates your soul. And he used that, <laughs> he's an example of Google that funded a project to solve death. And he says, Lanier says, I'm surprised the religions of the world didn't serve Google with a copyright infringement <laughs> takedown notice. <laughs> so those are the 10 arguments. We won't cover all of them, but as we were reading the book, a few of them stood out for us and we will cover those today. One of the quotes that really stood out for us where he described Facebook and the others of social media uh, he called them, they're becoming the new ransomware of the internet. They mm. are the gatekeepers. Now, every time you want to search for something, you go to Google. You want to talk to a friend, you go to your messenger. They are now. You want to know the news, you go to your Twitter. They are the ransomware of the internet. Look, well, one of the ones that stood out for me where Jaron really describes perfectly the situation we found ourselves in was where he's talking about social media being this third party between two people. I can't actually now just have a relationship face-to-face that's direct. I am. I first have to go through a proxy in order to have a relationship with someone, uh, whether that's online dating or social media, whether it's a friendship or something more, or even an employer or employee. Finding information yeah, or reading the news. Or- just the tiniest thing about the world, my interactions, the tiniest interactions are, are, are being arbitrated by social media companies who do not have my best interests at heart. One interesting thing he talks about in his throughout his book is the bummer. <laughs> uh, what, what, what does bummer mean? Bummer machine. Book? Yes, he introduces this idea of the bummer machine and it stands for behaviors of users modified and made into an empire for, for rent. rent. <laughs> That's a, a complex set of, of ideas all jointed together with sticky tape there, but they really do work. He's talking about the behaviors of us people that are being modified by social media and it doesn't stop there. That behavior is commodified and then it becomes commercialized and put out there for rent. That's what he's trying to describe. So this is a machine that he's describing. It's a system at work. The other ideas he talks about in his book that we really liked, he explained that our, our smartphone are the cage that goes everywhere with us. That's a very good idea in his book. He talks about algorithmic behavior modifiers, and that's what he called the smartphones. That's another name for smartphones algorithmic behavior modifiers. He talks about that we've been hypnotized little by little by technicians who we can see. 
We're lab animals. He talks about us as <laughs> exactly what we talked about: beef, Skinner, rat, yes. or baffle of dog. Yeah. He talks. He mentioned them in his book, which is amazing that we covered this in our Captology episodes. We are fed dynamically, optimized digital stimuli that will alter us. These ideas are huge, are big, put in very easy to read language in his book, and it really makes us reflect yeah. on where we're going next. And I really love that the discussion will go about the world sees no alternative. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. Well, I'm curious to know, Mia, as you read the book, some arguments really stood out for you more than others. What's the first one for the episode today? Absolutely. The first argument in the book that we are losing our free will. I came from a society where it's heavily radicalized, heavily brainwashed. And internet gave me the window to the outside world where I learned critical thinking. I learned questioning the reality that's been put in front of me. I learned, I learned to take back my agency when it comes to what I believe in, what I believe is the truth. And unfortunately today, that's been taken away by social media in the way the business model that's designed today. I'm going to read from the first argument in his book. Something entirely new is happening in the world. Just in the last five or 10 years, nearly everyone started to carry a little device called smartphone on their person all the time that's suitable for algorithmic behavior modification. And he explained, I love, because we talked in our first episode about surveillance-based advertising, how we think the data they collect about us is the data we give it to them. But Mia, it's just my email address. What's so bad about that? Your email, your phone number. <laughs> we think this what is the data. Lie, right? yeah. Yeah. But that's completely not true. They are capable of collecting so much behavioral data about us. Things like how fast we, we click on our phone, the times we open our phone, when do we charge it, when do we leave the office actually and come back. Things like how long you look at a video, uh, when did you click on something and purchased? They study that very carefully and then they use all this data. They feed it to their algorithm. So when they show you advertising and he called it the so-called advertising, he hates the word advertising. He says, it's not advertising. He calls it, he says, the right way to call it is the direct manipulation of people advertising. Then he pulls <laughs> no punches, Jaren, does he in this book? And, and he, he talks about that all this behavioral data and online activity that our phones collect and mine about us and fit to algorithm that really studies very well and understand even our moods, our emotions, when we're scared, when we are depressed, when we are lonely, when we are... And they experience all that. And what they do, they craft the right messages to you in the right time of the day. We talked about this in our first episode, and it's really scary. We think that we have free will when we bought something, voted to someone, or wrote something online, or didn't even write online. But all those are carefully engineered, were carefully being changed based on our previous yeah. uh, behavior. And what also happened, they study other people's behavior. When did they buy something Oh, when do they go online? And then they apply that to you. They say you look alike groups. Yeah. So you might be also, because you look alike this group and this trick worked in them, we're going to apply it to you too. So not only that we think it's our individual behavior that being collected and used against us, but it's the collective 
behaviors that have been collected about all this mass number of people, this huge power in networks. We talked about Beef Skinner and he mentioned it in this chapter. But the interesting thing he compares between why it's very dangerous that you don't have free will. In the past, we all watched the same advertising on, on TV. It wasn't crafted and customized for us. That's not the case anymore. He talks about, I read this from his book and I just love it. Uh, what might once have been called advertising must now be understood as continuous behavioral modification on a titanic scale. And he's exactly talking about, don't be insulted. I might tell you that you're turning slowly into uh, an animal, like a, a lab rat, or maybe worse, a robot. Yeah. You're on your zombie mode the whole time. But that's argument one. And he talks about, um, again, the cage that we carry with us everywhere, the carrot and stick. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the rewards system. Yes. That's, that, it's, it's very... It's sad, I think, argument one, that nothing should take our free will. Nothing should take our agency and our self-determination. That network and knowledge that Manal was just talking about all feeds an economical system. And that leads me to argument two of the book, which really appealed to me, where Jaron was saying, quitting social media is the most finely targeted way to resist the insanity of our times. But I'd like to rename this chapter. I'd like to call it the best way to stick it to the big tech man. Because <laughs> I really love the fact that we do have a great way to fight back against all this madness. So I've, I've re renamed that title of that chapter for my purposes. <laughs> so I think Jaron's made a very nuanced point because we do have the cage, we have the phone. But Jaron's saying that's that's not necessarily the bad bit. That's not the problem. We are perpetually online. And yes, that's a new thing, but it's still not the big problem. He really wants to define the problem in, in, in precise terms. And what he's saying is actually it's when you combine those elements with um, something, it's a key ingredient. And that is when all those elements are driven by the surveillance-based advertising model and we become commodified and our behaviors become a commercial entity and our that people can be sold and our experiences could be bad. Could be commodified. Yes, commodified and also predicted and then sold on an open market. That's when things really start to get scary. So I think, I think he makes a really good point there. And Jaron himself, he confesses that he's not generally an optimist, but in this particular way he is because he doesn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. He wants us to keep the good of technology, but purge the toxic bad bits. And I like that. I think his second argument is all about quitting social media, getting away from social media accounts, which conform to this bummer model that we were talking about, because he has different grades of the bummer machine. <laughs> you know, there's top tier bummers and then there's middle tier and lower tier bummer platforms. And he likes to call them out a little bit separately. And want to be bummer. And want to be bummers. <laughs> so um, what I think is good about this chapter is that he's 
he's telling us that quitting social media is the best way to fight back, a bit like when Neo finally learns Kung Fu and starts fighting the agents. In the Matrix. In the Matrix, yeah. So it's it the problem is not that the the superficial long distance digital connections we have or the screen time or the smartphone explosion, but or, or that even social media necessarily brings out the worst in us, but it's when these elements are combined with uh, with a, a key driver, which is the surveillance-based advertising model. For those of you interested, check out episode one of Tech for Evil because we cover that in detail, in depth. It's it's our first episode and I had a ton of fun doing that. It was our first step into the podcasting and it was awesome. So um, this unfortunately is also amplified. This bummer machine is amplified by the tendency for the model to produce negative instead of positive emotions, which is a big amplifier in this, this bummer machine. Um, so the bummer machine has a number of components. There's the bummer business model, the algorithm, the bummer platforms, and the, solu- the solution simply is that Jaren's proposing that we stop participating in it. And that's the most feeding powerful the beast, thing, yeah. feeding this stop beast. feeding the beast. The beast to him has a number of components and he has a mnemonic there going from A to F. We got A, which is the attention acquisition that leads to asshole supremacy. <laughs> Seriously, supremacy. read the book. It's hilarious. B, which is the butting into everyone's lives. C, which is cramming content down people's throats. D, directing our behavior in the sneakiest of ways. E, earning money from letting the worst assholes secretly screw us over and F, the fake mobs and fake society that the bummer machine generates. I love that chapter. Great argument for deleting social media apps. Amazing. You are listening to Tech for Evil with Manal and Reinhardt. So argument three then leads us into social media is making us assholes. And Jaron's very quick to point out he's not necessarily calling you an asshole, but that there is certainly a lot more assholedness going around now. And that social now that social media is everywhere, it's just far easier to find very negative behavior. Um, his, his argument is that it's, it's likely that what we're seeing and what we mean by asshole behavior is the types of behaviors you'd expect to see an addict have who might be in denial and that behavior leads to aggressive outbursts, leads to denial, leads to quickly taking offense, uh, to lash out and to snap and to be unstable and have arguments with your friends who are just out to protect you. So. Jaron's being really vulnerable here in this chapter too, because he talks about his own experience in the groovy 70s when he was first exploring the internet. And I think he's talking about bulletin boards here, I imagine, although he doesn't specifically call them out, that long before social media was even a term, let alone a thing, he noticed that it would bring out the worst in him and he Mm. would get into online spats with people, spats about stupid stuff like pianos, pretty hilarious to see you know i know more about pianos than you kind of thing it's really ridiculous like nerds fighting it out but um he also writes later that when he went back into this sort of territory by working for the huffington post he described similar highs and lows that posting would get that attention but then it goes from bad or good attention that that would bring and he he rage quit from that role so he noticed it was making him become an asshole and a fake nice person, he calls it, which is one of the outcomes of this bummer machine. So he makes a good point there that it, there's an amplification. It's a, Social media is this asshole amplification technology and it's unleashing our inner troll. So he, he makes a, an interesting kind of spectrum. He 
tries to argue for the for the for two possible mindsets that we could have when we're online. One is the wolf mindset, the wolf pack mindset, which is all about social approval, conformity, dominate, dominating the hierarchy and being accepted by society. And then the more solidarity mindset, which is the one that I think the, the sort of solidarity mindset you were talking about when you were growing up in Saudi Arabia and you were learning to kind of think for yourself, become independent, search for evidence and, and value those things over and above the social conformity to an oppressive system. So he's, I think, called out something really good in this argument that the oppression that we might feel from the internet is something we can fight against. If we adopt that solidarity mindset, that independent mindset, and actually go and seek evidence for ourselves, rather than trying to agree with, agree what people with say. everything and everyone. And also, the social media makes it difficult to find the truth, because what happened, everyone is a journalist now. Everyone is yeah. sharing their, the most interesting thing they did online. So you just like constantly bombarded with people, other people. Uh, feed news feed yes. it comes a new news feed and then the sponsored news feed and then whatever news feed and you're constantly there's this chase and there's this um, competition for how much data you've been fed you lose even um, being focused on the things that really matters for you and people just get emotional and they don't validate those posts or those things that shows in there so it really makes it very difficult to find the truth, which is actually the one I'm going to talk about next. So this Wolfpack mentality, the biggest reason I like, like this chapter is that Jaron is stressing the importance of truth finding mm. and utility it, it, just for the human experience. It's foundational to our lives. So he uses the, the mystery of, of guessing the number of beans in a jar um, and how that averaging the diverse guesses that you might get from a classroom of students gives you more often than not, statistically, a very close to truthful answer. So if you have a jar of beans at the front of a desk and you're a professor and you invite the class to guess the number of beans, the fact that you get a diverse range of opinions from the classroom statistically means that you get very close to the truth. And he's using that as a metaphor for the power of the good that the internet could bring and the power of the good that social media could bring. The wow, fact that other amazing. perspectives in aggregate can lead us to truth. And that's one of the reasons I really love this chapter is, is about that truth. But you you resonated with a chapter that's all about yeah, this, so this argument subject of for, truth. Yeah. An argument for, he talks, and that's very important to me as a human rights activist, that the argument for, he talks about that how social media is undermining truth. And he's true about that. With social media, free social media, you can open as many accounts as you want. And those accounts, you don't have to pay for them subscription. So there's no pain. So there was a there's rise. no consequence. No consequence and no pain. No, you don't, you're not investing money. You're only investing time and effort. And that created the phenomena of fake accounts and bots. And those are not fake accounts. It's a person, but they are under anonymous name. And they can be infinite, right? They can be anyone and they can act in any unresponsible way. They can spread rumors, lies. There's a, um, hating someone and they can post um, misinformation about that person. With no consequences. With no consequences. And you can see that in the rise of disinformation and misinformation. And it's important to explain this. We explained it before. Disinformation is when you post fake news on purpose. Misinformation are people taking that news 
and sharing it again, reposting and sharing and liking, that's misinformation because it didn't validate the, the and that one makes it makes the truth undermined and what makes the finding the truth is so difficult today in the current model of social media. I want to talk about Twitter, for example. Twitter, there are hundreds of thousands of fake accounts in that. And what those accounts do, they're trained into making something we call, they, it's called trends. So when you create a new hashtag, let's say we created a hashtag called Little Bay, where you live here. Little Bay is awesome. And another person created a hashtag, Little Bay sucks. And what happened is if you have <laughs> bots that can amplify Little Bay is awesome and can make it worldwide trends, what happened to people like me and you who are real, not fake? They think, oh, the world is talking about this thing. Maybe it's important. Let's talk about it too. Because what happened when you are worldwide trend, everyone reads the post on that trend. So you have the chance, bigger chance that people read your post, know about your account, if you go and write on that trend. How amazing. And that all started by either fake accounts or bots. And I face that on Twitter. So the truth is buried deep because what happened, fake accounts also, they drawn down uh, those trends, I mean, hashtags. So if you have authentic voices talking about important things that happen a little bit, no one will see it. Someone else is not on their best of interest that you know about that thing. So they're going to drone that. And that happened in the case of Jamal Khashoggi, the, the Saudi journalist who was killed in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, the times of the investigation about his disappearance, because he disappeared before he was announced killed, it was amazing. It was a worldwide war on hashtags. There were the hashtags talking about his disappearance and the hashtag completely trying to draw on those ones. And it's true, social media with the current business model that rewards quantity over quality. You don't see quality content anymore. You see what everyone thinks is popular and will get me see and will get me the most retweets and most likes and most favorites. We can buy attention. Attention. And that's that why the truth is not valuable anymore. The book is really interesting to read. And I am pretty sure that Jaron Lanier had hundreds of arguments to delete yes. our social media as it exists today, as you mentioned before, way more than 10. And he just put it in a very con concise and very refined and, and funny. funny, very funny, small book that you can read in an afternoon. Highly recommended to go through it to reflect. But also we have our own reflection, like reading the book, me and Reinhardt, we had our own reflection. And I really want to hear from you, Reinhardt, if you would decide today yeah. to delete any of your social media. I don't know where you are. Yes. I know you're on LinkedIn. Why would I do it? Why would you do it? Uh, the, re the main reason, so my personal argument for deleting social media accounts, I, I don't participate a lot anymore yeah. in social media accounts, the barest minimum. But my biggest reasons, I think, are about that quantity versus quality. The more mature I've, I've gotten and the more lived experiences I have, the more I want to be present for my friends, my family, my wife. Now that I'm a husband, I want to be fully there. Like if we're out on a date, I don't want to be obsessing over some activity that's happening in the background on some platform, I want to be fully present. And if my wife steps away to use the bathroom, I want to have the presence of mind to like have a spontaneous conversation with the waiter. I don't want to have to grab my phone and like do some death scrolling just because I, I'm too anxious to wait the five minutes before she gets back. The discomfort know? of silence. Yeah. yeah. And that, that quality, I think really appeals to me. The fact that I can have more 
emotional and cerebral bandwidth for connection, for, for real connection with human beings and actually to be there. And I'm practicing that a bit more in my life now, trying to be, to maybe borrow some terms from the online, from the World Wide Web, online and offline behavior. I want to be, I want to be less online in the digital world and I want to be more online as a real human being in the real world. Present. Present, yeah. For people, for like for doing the podcast and for interacting with real human beings and hearing real stories because I think they're just more exciting. And Jaron had a, had a phrase for it. I, I think it was in his TED, TED Talk um, description. It was like the magic or the mystery of just ordinary life. So I'm trying to, I think the more I disconnect from social media, the more I can re-engage with the magic of ordinary life. So that's my reason. What about, what about yours? You had, you had some really good yeah, um, personal so stories. Cybersecurity expert, I know the abuse, the extent of abuse and surveillance that we are uh, going through unknowingly. Most people, they don't know how much they've been surveilled and their data being collected about them. They don't know the extent of putting us at risk, the collective risk actually of mining so, so much data about us. And, and you have no clue if it's protected, well protected, and if it falls in the wrong hands. And that made me really stay away from all social media because I don't want to share my personal life there. And those social media companies, they just study me as a human based on what I post and my pictures and when I posted. And, and, and you're not even as a human to them, are you? You're no. just an entity. You are a, a lab rat. Yeah. You've been studied carefully because what they do, um, I'll give an example of the billion picture taken from our Instagrams to train the facial recognition uh, algorithm of Facebook. They, sh they claim they shut down. Pretty much I don't believe anything Facebook says. <laughs> they claim they shut down that and they claim they shut down the facial recognition uh, feature on their Facebook because they, they came under so much... Um, the privacy advocate, they attacked Facebook so much, but there's so many, mm. so many technology out there taking our facial prints without our knowledge. Um, give example, recently in Australia, some privacy advocates found out that uh, prominent stores in Australia, like Bunnings, which is a warehouse like Home Depot in the US, uh, Target, Target exists in the US too, and, and the good guys all these companies, they use facial recognition in their, in their CCTV and they have not told their customers. So you've been walking in without suspecting that there was a digital image taken from your of your face using facial recognition technology. And you know how dictatorship use facial recognition technology to oppress their uh, citizens. Surveillance. It starts surveillance. with surveillance. You were telling me, we were talking about this in the prep for the podcast. Yeah. Any democracy, do you want to, the first sign for any system that moves towards authoritarianism is mass surveillance. And if we normalize mass surveillance by accepting that our social media account are collecting and monitoring our behavior all the time. Alexa, listen to you when you are sitting in your house. Listen to every single conversation you say. And it's, Alexa is just a, a data mining company that Amazon bought in 98. Guys, wake up. It is data mining company. It's not your personal assistant, your digital assistant. So that's the major reason I deleted all my social media account. Loss of truth extensive surveillance, so it's a privacy concern. But also there is this obsession. I saw my friends around how many people liked my picture, how many people retweeted my tweet, how many people are following me. 
and it's it create this social fake social status that you're important because you have a million followers on your Twitter. And then I found other people, very famous journalists in Saudi Arabia, were buying Twitter followers. You go and pay these companies, you pay their 1,000 followers. I'm like, oh, so you can go, it's like a store, like one kilograms, please, one kilo followers for my Twitter account. <laughs> it, yeah, and they pay something like $30 to, to get, and they show off that, oh, I have 100,000. Most of them are fake. Half of the followers of Trump, by the way, were fake. Yeah, that's, I, a, that's a good thing to know that it's not not only fake, it's also create this egoistic that, oh my God, look how many, this this obsession with how many numbers. Artificially inflated life of some, of some kind. I want to stay away from all that, really. Mental health was another major thing. I regret every single minute I wasted going through, scrolling through my Twitter feed or crafting the next message or, you know, feeling going through fights with people on my Twitter account. I should have spent those minutes enjoying my time, peaceful time with my writing an article or reading a book or really enjoying life instead of all that emotional labor that we put when we go online. I was surprised to hear you're even withdrawing more from LinkedIn now as well as, yes. a, as a platform to yeah. engage with because it's just another social media outlet, right? It's And it's succumbing to the same types of negative things that we're seeing on Facebook, Twitter. What do you TikTok. think of LinkedIn now? It's turned to be like... It's changed, I, but I struggle to find the words for how exactly it's changed. I, I struggle to describe it. I just know that the LinkedIn I remember from a few years ago is not, is not what I see now, but I, I also wonder, and we were talking about this earlier, whether we're whether there's a natural sort of phenomena that we are feeding ourselves. Like if an employer is demanding that I have to sell myself oh. in such grand terms in order to get a job and I, I won't get one otherwise. Because no one would know you. It's going to incentivize this grandiose descriptions of me. And I think LinkedIn is it's the perfect temptation to have a grandiose description of my professional or my, my, my career life. And I, I even find myself falling victim to it too. I want to, I, I want to amplify who I am, but I'm just, I'm just Reinhardt. I'm just a simple How guy. How do you feel? Like I feel terrible when I go and I say I'm thrilled to speak in this. Place. I'm like, oh. oh my god! After I post it, I'm like, why did it's I just so post that? So contrived and yeah. fake. You know, just what? like Jaron says, yeah. I went to a, a conference recently, a cyber conference. It was by the Australian Information Security Association. And the face-to-face -face interaction was phenomenal. People knew who I was because they saw me speaking once in the same conference. They came to me, we talked, we, we exchanged numbers, we had amazing time and amazing discussions. You were real humans together. All of us real human. I didn't need to go and they remember things they saw in person. Yeah. I didn't need to go and post about the conference in, in, in my LinkedIn. They knew me through the, the podcast, which is amazing. I'm so, so, so thrilled. They, they know about the podcast. But that face-to-face -face networking and face-to-face, -face, you are providing value. You are, you are there because you're trying to help people. People will know about you. You don't need to go on your LinkedIn and post. LinkedIn became because now they have the sponsored feed. So you're just like... Oh, is that what it is? The sponsored, sponsored feed? The sponsored feed and advertising. And they, unfortunately, the last two years, LinkedIn went also down the rat hole of um, privacy violations. And I found so many things about their app. So I removed their app from my phone. So they're going through this toward the same 
direction of other social media, unfortunately. And people who use LinkedIn and they feel like oh, it's too much. It makes them feel anxious and depressed after they look at everyone's feeds, talking about all awesome things they invented and did in their life. I think it's just becoming Instagram for professional people. Yeah, there's a phenomenon, I think, that I remember someone explaining to me called academic inflation. So when universities first started issuing degrees, it was special to be in society and have one degree of any kind. professor. But then guess what happened? You get this academic inflation where one degree used to be enough, now you need two. And where two degrees used to be enough to get that job, now you need three. So you end up with this academic inflation. Not only do you need more degrees, but you also end up with the cost of degrees increasing, which is what we have now, right? Whether we're paying astronomical sums as students to get a degree, to, to get access to this exclusive club. So we're suffering from our inflation. And I wonder if there's an inflationary factor involved in social media as well. Whereas, you know, like 10 likes used to make you happy. Now you need 100. Because you compare also the social comparison. We have some, some thoughts, me and Reinhardt, we thought of. So what are the, we do want to say alternatives. What a world without social media would look, like. look like. How did we communicate in the past before social media? People who are internet native, they don't know that, that beauty of that world. I'm not going to say it's, 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 all, you know, they were born inside the matrix, but yeah, they don't know rainbows. what it was like before. <laughs> yeah, it was difficult because it was so expensive. You remember when we had to pay per minute when you oh, make yeah. international phone 50 calls? 50 cents for a text message. Yeah, and now we have video calls and you didn't pay for that. How amazing the, the, the technology it brings people who are far away close, but at the same time... It has its perils. It, yes, and we don't want to lose the, the beauty of what the technology is giving us. We just want to, with Jaron Lanier mentioned, we want to remove the toxic. You remember the... Oh, the paint, the, yes. He said paint, when mean, people discovered yeah. that there uh-huh. was lead in paint and it was making them sick, they didn't stop using paint. They got rid of the lead. They yes. got rid of the toxic bit and kept the beautiful bit, which was the paint. And that's what we want, the engagement algorithm. He suggests at the end of his book that subscription-based model could help, but still, you know, Netflix are introducing ads. You're paying subscription yes. and they want to introduce the lower, yeah, cheaper lower version. Tier. Yeah, lower tier. And you pay, you pay, you pay, um, you don't, you don't pay that much to watch ads. And I don't know if the subscription model will work, but all I think of is that we do need to be educated more about what do we give away when we, when we sign up for these social media accounts. And we do need to have those very open conversation when we see our kids being addicted to technology, their mental health is being uh, affected. Um, I think investing our, in our mental health and valuing our time is very important to make us make that decision, uh, educating people about how manipulative it is, how it's engineered, it's addictive by design. I think this is very important to spread the, the word. So guys, if you listen to this podcast, please share with your friends and family. I think this, this episode is 18 plus because we, we use the word asshole and bastards <laughs> and bummer. Definitely going to hit the senses there. And, and one of the things is just, um, I'm reading a book called Deep Work. And one of the most beautiful thing about this book, he mentioned how the current world that we're constantly connected, constantly expected to be online and responsive, constantly being distracted Sounds and bombarded exhausting. by notification, how that gets in the way of deep work mm. and most big in inventions, most big uh, grandiose work in the world. 
it happened in, it didn't happen in open space. They are against in the book deep work. He's against open space, against constant interruption. He's with deep work because we live. He said the the current world we live in today, we produce only shallow work that doesn't have any value. We don't go deep in our work anymore, and that we lose quality. We're over only quantity. And he um, explained in the book, such a good book, Deep Work, for me also being present and mindful, not only the deep work that social media prevents, but also how to be, as you mentioned, when you are out on a date with your wife. I really just want to be mindful. I want to daydream. I want to think of big ideas and thoughts without being constantly interrupted. What about you? What's the... What's the things that you, you dream of? Oh boy, a, but a better look, future. Yeah, look, a future without social media, even then, that that's already enough for me. More imaginative, more connected, better mentally stable. But the, yeah, the meaningful relationships. I'm a people person. I love people. I think they're the most fascinating things on the planet more than things. Although my wife might argue I, my obsession with cables disproves, disproves me. <laughs> my <laughs> argument there a little bit and guitars. But definitely the meaningful relationships, being present and mindful. The ability to achieve not only deep work, but maybe even be closer to the ability to grasp at truth again. Mm. Maybe without social media. I'm not sure where I land on Jaren's argument. Whether or not being on social media does contain the benefits of aggregating that diverse opinion and being able to find truth because you're, you now have a hundred or a thousand opinions about a certain topic instead of just ten. So I'm not sure, not sure where I land with that, but I feel increasingly like I'm, it's harder for me to make sense of the world. So I think, I think either the internet begins to start fighting for a case for its own utility and meaning in our life by giving us a better way to make sense of the world, or it just recognizes the limitation that it, 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 it can't do that. It, it's just too sophisticated, too complex, too big, maybe too vast, too unwieldy to give us as individuals a lens into truth. And maybe that was its promise that will forever be unrealized. I'm not sure. Maybe the future will, will, will bear that out. But I'm looking forward to having a world that makes more sense again in my head. Yeah, ethical technology, ethical social media, ethical way of connecting and getting paid for the data that they've been taken away from us, uh, been sold to everyone. A different economic model mm-hmm. for the whole thing. Yeah, there are actually a lot of discussions around that. But this is the end of our episode and we hope you really give the book a look it's very interesting or maybe listen to one of his TED talk you've been listening to Tech for Evil with Manal and Reinhardt from Sydney